Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week, we're going to be talking to some extraordinary people, starting with Rachel Bloom. She co-created and starred in the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and she's going to talk to us about her book of essays titled, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are, Don't We All? Then we're going to talk to former professional basketball player turned poet Natalie Diaz about her book, Post-Colonial Love Poem, which just so happened to win this year's Pulitzer Prize for poetry, which, as they say, is kind of a big deal. Plus, we're going to hear some music from one of my very favorite musicians this moment, Kevin Morby. So that is the plan. Great edition of Livewire coming up. Don't go anywhere because it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It is going so well this week, huh. especially because we are about to play some station location identification examination. So I'm going to give you a place and you try to guess the place that I am talking about. Okay. okay. This is an amazing story, actually. In 1977, a German tourist named Erwin Cruz was on his way to San Francisco when he accidentally disembarked the airplane while it was fueling in this city. Okay. So he got off the plane... Yeah, it's not San Francisco. He was trying to go to San Francisco. The plane was refueling. This was back in 1977 when they <laughs> stopped to refuel airplanes. He wandered off the plane and then spent four days in this city becoming a minor celebrity as he was <laughs> thinking it was San Francisco. Well, it's either like relatively... No, I guess if they're refueling, it must be kind of far from San Francisco. Uh -huh. So I'm going to think of a place that's really far from San Fr uh, uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Oh, keep going east and north. Portland, Maine. Oh, you're in the right state, but you've got to just take a little jaunt over to Bangor, Maine, oh. where we are on Maine Public Radio, W-M-E-H. Bangor, Maine. What, what? That's right. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for tuning in out there in Bangor. Uh, speaking of our radio show, should we get going with it, Elena? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, entertainer and writer Rachel Bloom. I'm very fascinated by tropes for the same reason I'm fascinated by normalcy. There's the 
box you think you should be in, and then there's the reality of life. And poet Natalie Diaz. This book for me, it's very much about my practices of language. With music by Kevin Morby. Suddenly being in the suburbs of Kansas City, we were just sort of more attuned to the phases of the day. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We have a great show in store for you this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listening audience a question. We asked, what minor childhood grievance are you still waiting for an apology for? We're going to hear those answers <laughs> coming up in a bit. First, though, it is time for the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Okay, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I've probably mentioned it maybe four or five times in our three and a half years doing this show together, what my least favorite thing in the world is. Oh, I should know this if you've mentioned it a lot. My leaf favorite thing in the world, okay. maybe. My leaf favorite thing. Oh, oh, <laughs> yes. I know what you're talking about. This must have to do with the noise that emanates from a leaf blower. Yes, yes. And I feel bad about it because it's about my personal comfort. And as a middle-aged white lady, I'm trying not to think so much about my comfort as much as the comfort of others. But I hate leaf blowers. And this isn't the best news that I've heard all week because it's actually (laughs) terrible information. But I've learned more information about why leaf blowers stink. Okay. So I guess the, the reason it's the best news is because you now have more information. Well, the information led to some governmental decisions that's actually really great news. But I just want to say, in addition to being noisy and swarmy and around my house constantly by all of my neighbors who cannot stand to see one leaf or frond (laughs) in the Pacific North freaking West, they're also just kind of terrible for the environment. They're terrible Mm -hmm. for biodiversity because obviously it's not just leaves that are being blown around. It's all the little critters and things that keep the soil rich and safe and hold in moisture that are underneath it. Nobody ever talks about that. I never thought of that. So in the, uh, you know, pre-leaf blower days, a lot of those leaves would just land. They would kind of become, you know, mulch or whatever that is. And there was a whole biodiversity element. I never thought of that. Yeah. The reason trees lose their leaves is because it works for the system. Um, But the sort of main harm is environmental because of this two-stroke engine off-putting of carbon monoxide, nitrous oxides, and carcinogenic hydrocarbons. These are all in gas-powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers. And I read a bunch of statistics. I will not read the most extreme. Here's a middle of the road statistic. There are 16 and a half million gas powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers in California alone. Hmm. And it creates more pollution in California than cars do. Wow. An hour blowing the leaves off of your lawn is equivalent to at the very least an eight hour trip in a Ford F-150 in terms of carbon emissions. 
I used to live in California and it felt like there was a leaf blower running 24 mm-hmm. seven. And that is because it sounds like there's a leaf blower running 24 <laughs> seven somewhere in the golden state. Well, here comes the good news. A couple of weeks ago, they have passed legislation that is going to instate a ban on gas powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers as of around 2024. Total ban on gas powered leaf blowers and lawnmowers. So yeah. I guess all electric or you have to go back to the rake. There will be incentives for replacing your gas-powered two-stroke engine leaf blowers with an electric one, which is quieter, notably quieter. I will still be bothered by it, but at least the biodiversity and emissions thing will be taken care of. But the other thing that I'm a little worried about is the house next door to me, the person who moved in this year was from California. Person across the street moved in from California, up the road, California. They're all probably just going to come here where leaf blowers are still legal and it's just going to be even worse for me. (laughs) You know, there's also going to be a Tesla self-driving leaf blower that's going to have all kinds of problems where like people just let it go in the yard and it's like bumping into things. That's true. It'll, it'll emit a lot of musk. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Well, that's still an improvement. Uh, you know, my best news I heard this week actually comes from London. I didn't know this, but did you know that London cabbies that are at the kind of highest level of being a green badge is what it's called. They have to pass a test called the knowledge Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's like, it, I'm obsessed with it. It's, it's it's an amazing skill, trade, profession, monastic way of life. It's like being a sommelier of the roads of London. They have to be able to find 100,000 businesses and landmarks wow. in London. And once they begin the process of trying to get their green badge for the knowledge, they keep getting brought in and tested and retested. And if at any point in the process, they mess up, they go back to like step one with getting this badge thing. And the streets of London are like notoriously crooked and labyrinthine and not grid oriented, right? Right. So this is a whole like kind of brain chemistry that you have to develop if you want to be one of these highest achieving cabbies in London. It involves such an amazing uh, kind of memory and and work by, on the part of the hippocampus that they are now studying these London cabbies because the hippocampus is something that they found actually shrinks in people who are dealing with Alzheimer's. And oh. these London cabbies grow the size of their hippocampus. <laughs> Because of memorizing all of the streets of London. Oh, my God. So they are now studying them and trying to figure out how is it that they're able to grow their hippocampus and how can they apply this to people who are potentially uh, dealing with Alzheimer's, right? That's amazing. Seriously impressive. And in fact, one of the cabbies they interviewed in this article, unfortunately lost one of his parents to Alzheimer's, but he feels like he's getting to sort of help out by letting them study his brain and his hippocampus. Oh, that's so cool. And maybe they'll like make exercises that build muscles based on the way these cabbies learn and build their own muscles professionally. That is exactly what they're looking that's into. That's so cool. I'm fascinated by this, Elena, because whatever it is that these cab drivers have, this ability to just navigate mm-hmm. things, I absolutely do not. Like there is a grocery store <laughs> that's like six blocks from my apartment here in Portland. And this sounds like I'm I'm just exaggerating. I will get lost pretty regularly trying to go there. <laughs> Do you get a hippocampus in your hippocampus? I think I was That's dropped on my hippocampus <laughs> when I was a young child Aww. because I have the absolute worst sense of spatial locating and, uh, and directions. Mm-hmm. So whatever they figure out from this study, I'm going to try to look into it because um, I could use some help in the navigation department. Yeah. Hearing that they uh, are putting all of that brain power to work over there in London to help other people, that 
is the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's get our first guest on over here to the show. She was the star and co-creator of the musical dramedy Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which won her an Emmy and a Golden Globe. Uh, She's also written a fascinating book of essays titled I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Rachel Bloom right here on Livewire. Rachel Bloom, welcome to the Livewire house party. Thanks for having me. What a party. Uh, <laughs> you're making it more more partyish by your very presence. This book is an absolute delight. Thank um, you. And it starts off with a with a great moment where there's a poem, and as the reader, I was reading it and I was like, "This is a, a pretty okay poem, but it seems maybe somewhat childlike." And like, is this what it's like when Rachel Bloom writes a book of essays? This is, <laughs> all right. This is okay. I'm going to go with this, and then you get to the end of the poem. And, Thankfully, you wrote it when you were age 12. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering, like, when people would, would catch on. See, for me, it's because I, I say, who is normal? Your Freddie Prince Jr. lookalike crush. And right. I feel like if I were reading that, I'd be like, uh, what is wrong with this person? <laughs> it is a slightly outdated reference. Uh, you, you did seem in the book like a very uh, imaginative kid, also who was really into documenting your life and your feelings and your fantasies. What, what was it like for you being, being 12 years old? Uh, it was miserable, but I really, I like myself a lot more looking back now than I, I think at, at the time. Mm. And I think that's the same thing for everyone who's ever been 12 years old, which is everybody. Um, I couldn't help but be myself, which was just smart, imaginative, dramatic, and weird, which is the way Rebecca Bunch is described in the pilot of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Um, but I didn't... I wasn't secure in being those things. What what do you mean when you say normal people in the context of this book? In the context of this book, it's, it's me looking from the outside in and thinking everyone had gotten it and understood how to be normal and fit in. And there was something I didn't understand. But then in your work, I know that you... You, you, you it's don't my want husband. To seem... It's my husband, Gregor, walking in. Woo-hoo! Hey there. They said we can embrace the fact that we're at home. Uh, well, the lunch order that you wanted. Yeah. Uh, you actually ordered on a breakfast menu and oh. it's not available anymore. Oh, no. I was wondering why there were only breakfast options. Yes. Uh, so I don't know if you want to see another. Yeah, yeah. Let me just look at the menu while I'm still talking. So this is yeah, that's a good yeah. use of time. Yeah, great. Okay, what, are the, what are the options? Um, yeah, we'll help. Well, we're ordering from a little plate. Are, are, you're located in Portland? Yeah. Yeah, so you get it. So there's this place called Cafe Gratitude. In mm-hmm. LA, which is a oh, sure. uh, hippie vegan stuff. Every dish is is called like the. Um, it's not just like Indian curry bowl. It's the I am humble. Uh, <laughs> instead of a macrobiotic bowl, it's called the I am whole. Can you guess what their black bean burger is called? Think about a word that wouldn't describe a black bean burger at all. Delicious. <laughs> Close. It's the I am magical. Uh, <laughs> magic beans. Uh, we're talking to Rachel Bloom here on the Livewire House Party. Uh, she's down in LA putting in uh, an order for some <laughs> very aspirationally named food. Uh, we were talking yeah. also, though, about her latest book, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. And, and the characters that you've portrayed on screen are decidedly not quote unquote normal, right? Like they have uh, some creativity, some quirk to them. Uh, that seems like an intentional decision, right? Yeah, and I think that beyond that, especially with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but I, I'm interested in this in general, 
What we did was we looked at tropes. We looked at kind of character tropes. Because I think that part of the feeling of being abnormal, it's not only fitting in with people, it's fitting into the box you think you should be in. And I think that's really reinforced by the media we consume and the, the tropes in that media. And so we tried to, especially in Crazy X, take certain characters that you think you know, both people you'd meet in real life and then characters that you see in narratives and then upend those characters. So for instance, in the first season, Rebecca Bunch has this nemesis in the guy she loves, his, his girlfriend, Valencia. Mm-hmm. And then we slowly pick away and we realize, no, Rebecca's the one trying to break up a relationship. <laughs> right. And we kind of strip her away. And by, and by the end of the series, she and Valencia are very good friends. So I'm very fascinated by tropes for the same reason I'm fascinated by normalcy. There's the box you think you should be in, and then there's the reality of life. Mm. Okay, we've got to take a real quick break. This is Livewire, by the way, from PRX. We're talking to Rachel Bloom about her new book, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Rachel Bloom, co-creator of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, about her book, I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. Um, This book talks a lot about your childhood and middle school and how you didn't totally fit in with the various social groups. And then you get to the part where you wrote an op-ed piece in the student paper against inside jokes. And a lot of that starts to make sense about you not being fully embraced. By the masses. Yeah. How, like, of all the topics, how did a young Rachel Bloom choose inside jokes to uh, take on? Well, you know, when I was a serious journalism student at the Surf Report uh, in <laughs> Manhattan right, Beach Middle School, that's right, the Surf Report, um, we were told to look for the hard-hitting stories. Mm-hmm. And I passed people in the hallway laughing about things I didn't understand, and I thought... That's it. I'm going to crack this 
wide open. And my deep throat was myself. <laughs> were you were you anti-inside joke because you felt left out of some of the social groups and therefore didn't know what they were laughing about and wanted things to be more inclusive? Yeah, of course. Of course, when it was my own inside joke, yeah. which I had with my friends, I was fine. Right. What I don't like about inside jokes to this day is when they are taken from the inside and put outside. Yeah. I think I also noticed this happened in high school. I'm really annoyed now, actually. <laughs> in like the yearbook, you could do yearbook ads for like your friends and people would always put like your, your inside jokes in the yearbook ads. And it's mm -hmm. like, ugh, who's that for? And obviously it's just for you and your friend. But like, yeah, it always made me feel left out. We really turned a corner from the gratitude of the earlier part yeah. of this conversation and just moved into railing against against uh, childhood annoyances. Although, I mean, the way that you describe these things in the book, Rachel, it's so funny, but it's also really relatable. I'm wondering, do you get, it's the same for you financially if people purchase the audiobook version versus the book book version? Because I want to try to steer people towards the audiobook oh my version. Because yes. your performance the is musical. so great in it. <laughs> like it you. is a full, I read about half the book and then I listened to about half the book and it is, it's a full service experience to yeah. hear you reading and performing this thing. I'm quite proud of the audiobook. I don't, I mean, I think that maybe the book helps me financially a little bit more, but honestly, I'm fine with either. I'm really proud of the audiobook. I'm also really happy, as you know, there's a 15 minute musical in yeah. the book and you don't have to have purchased the audiobook to listen to it because I wanted people to be able to hear it as they were reading along if they just bought the book, if they oh, cool. wanted to. So you can get the link to that musical on my website. But either way, <laughs> either way, however you want to consume the content, stream it, watch it on Quibi. <laughs> Uh, you said that uh, people have actually reached out to you after you became really well-known uh, to apologize for how they treated you. How does that whole scenario unfold, and what's that like for you? Well, I did a live show in 2012, and one of my main bullies came to see the show. And she kind of apologized in high school, but she came to see the show. She brought me flowers, and then she took me out for coffee, and she apologized. And then we talked about our problems, and she was four years sober, and... Um, she was enlightened. She was, she literally used the phrase, I was unenlightened hmm. in, in middle school. What did that feel like for you? Um, did it have the effect that this person was going for, or did it feel yet again, uh, to be about them? No, it did. It did have the effect that it was going for. I mean, it was a little ab about her in the end because she did ask me to like be her acting mentor. Um, <laughs> oh, and I no. was like, and I was like, I don't think you'll get from that what you want. <laughs> Um, well, you got the last laugh because you are in the midst of this really great career. You have won, uh, I believe, an Emmy and a Golden Globe, yeah, which, which is crazy. means you are only a Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award away from an EGOT. Yes. We know that like, there's a 100% chance you're going to eventually win the entire EGOT. Oh. And so we want to quiz your knowledge of uh, the group of people who have actually already won an EGOT. So when you get oh. there- you'll fit in. Oh, I love games. I love games. <laughs> okay, so only 16 people have actually gotten an EGOT. Uh, we're going to tell you the name of a person, mm. and then you have to guess if they got an EGOT or if they have an E-not. Oh. It's perfect. I love yeah, it. So here e we go. Not. That's great. Oprah Winfrey. Is Oprah Winfrey an, an, an EGOT recipient? I don't think she is. You are absolutely right. Ding, ding, ding. 
She is missing the Grammy. Yeah. Oh. I'm surprised that that something she's released that is a a spoken word product has not won a Grammy, though. There's Mm -hmm. no way she hasn't been nominated. I think that also there needs to be a separate category of who's EGOT nominated because I my my late writing partner Adam Schlesinger Mm -hmm. was EGOT nominated and I would always introduce him Ah. at concerts as EGOT nominated (laughs) and he'd come out and go oh my publicist Rachel Bloom like he was never found it (laughs) impressive but I found it so impressive Uh, by the way not not to not to move things on to a more somber topic but the book is dedicated to Adam I know yeah uh, he meant so much to you and and he passed away from COVID how has it been for you to, to keep creating stuff and being creative with such a close friend passing away Um, weird. I think especially anything song related or musical related Mm -hmm. is, is weird not to have him, have him there. I I wrote 157 original songs with him. Like I'm always going to have his voice and his, you know, what he would think in, in my head or me approximating that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm glad that I could dedicate the book to him and I'm glad I could, I think he would be the sil- a, sil- a, a silver lining of that is I could use that picture that he took uh, such measures to take for the <laughs> yeah, show. There's a right? photo that he insisted on taking for the TV show that was shown for literally a second that is now opens up my book. So I'm happy for him <laughs> that we can use that photo of him. Yeah, because as you mentioned on the show, it's on for less than five seconds. So now it's on. It's in the book forever. It's great because he would he was very egoless, but then he'd be like, I want to be we did a we created a fictitious composer named Elliot Ellison. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I want to be Elliot Ellison. I want to just have my picture on like that fictitious songbook. And we were like, Adam, that's going to be shown for like a second. (laughs) And we don't have time to organize that shoot. He's like, no, 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 I'll organize the shoot myself. I just really want to do it. We were like, are you sure you don't want to be on the show in a bigger capacity? We have so many other (laughs) things we've offered you. He's like, no, I only want this. And we were like, okay. And so he organized the shoot. He's got his hair done for it. And we were like, okay. He had the energy. He had the energy of a, of a 21 year old. That's how you Maybe. become EGOT nominated. That is how that you kind become EGOT nominated. Very specific drive towards certain things. All right. Well, continuing on with yes. our with our EGOT or ENOT quiz for Rachel Bloom here on Livewire. Audrey Hepburn is Audrey Hepburn uh, someone who has an EGOT? No. Oh, I'm sorry. She does. <gasps> Are you what? serious? What did yeah. she get her awards for? I, I have mean, no I idea. I'm Oscar. just looking at a list that says she does have one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. A couple more uh, before we uh, before we wrap things up here. How about Rita Moreno? Yes. Absolutely. Slam dunk. How about Angela Lansbury? Uh, I'm going to say she's missing an Oscar. She is and does not have an EGOT, but she has been nominated in all four categories. She's also an EGOT nominee, mm-hmm. as is the actor... Mark Ruffalo, nominated in all categories. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Who'd who'd have thunk it? Is this the kind of thing, Rachel Bloom, that, I mean, it's obviously made up and and sort of silly, but it's fun to be recognized by your peers and to say that you have a Golden Globe and an Emmy. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, do you lose any sleep ever thinking about things like winning an Oscar, winning an EGOT? Uh, I lost sleep over the award campaigns on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend mm. because I was, you know, a co-creator of that show. I was an executive mm-hmm. producer. So I was involved heavily with with the talk of awards and strategy with awards campaigning. Mm. They were just so stressful because there are so few things in life where you're going to find out a big thing that you've put a lot of hope on at this specific time. And you're just, your heart is racing. And it feels like a cast list going up. 
but way higher stakes. <laughs> the other crazy thing that I learned from the book about awards is there's another level of shapewear that, you know, people mm-hmm. who like don't ever get their picture taken have never experienced. I did not know you could put Spanx on top of another piece of shapewear. Oh, you sure can, because the spank, <laughs> what the Spanx does, if you're wearing like a corset type thing, the Spanx then smooths out the the steel or the metal of that corset thing. <laughs> Ouch. It's a view into a world that I had no idea existed. Yeah. But you feel so pretty. And then, you, you know, look great. you've done the red carpet and then you're sitting there and you're like, I am very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, well, we look forward to watching the rest of your career, Rachel, as you climb your way ever closer to the EGOT. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the Live Wire House Party. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. That was Rachel Bloom right here on Livewire. Her book is I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. And just an update on what Rachel has been up to. She's got a new TV comedy project in development. It's over at Hulu. It's called Badass and Her Sister. It's the story of a spy who's played by Rachel Bloom who tires of her life of sexy espionage and goes to live with her pushover (laughs) twin sister who, wait for it, Elena, is also played by Rachel Bloom. As it should be. That's right. Some real um, parent trap vibes going on. And I am here for it. So definitely check that out. The latest thing coming to you from Rachel Bloom. Hey, special thanks this episode to Patty O'Hara of Seattle, Washington. Patty is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting the show with a donation each month. And we are very grateful for that because it's how we're able to do the program. So a big thanks to Patty for making Livewire possible this week. This is Livewire. As we do every week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question. This week we asked, what minor childhood grievance are you still waiting for an apology for? Elena, you have been collecting up these responses. I think I said last week on the show that things were going to get real with these <laughs> childhood <laughs> grievances. So we're we're opening that Pandora's box. What are people saying? Oh, I mean, this is this is a grievance. I'm I, I feel the grieve. Megan says my mom sold all my teenage mutant ninja turtle action oh, figures no. to some kid for ten bucks at a garage sale. I could have made a killing on eBay. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like all generations are liking them. I know like a five year old who's obsessed with them right now. I was just in New York last week and I saw a kid on the subway wearing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles backpack. Oh, cool. I was thinking he thought maybe he was going to run into like Donatello from the Ninja (laughs) Turtles because we were in fact underground in New York City. There was probably a rat with a pizza like Shredder. Oh, Master Splinter, you mean? Oh, Splinter. Who's Shredder? Shredder's the bad guy. Uh, Master Splinter was like the little rat that trained him. Who was the brain in a jar? Krang. I totally dated a guy just like that guy. (laughs) I did. (laughs) What's another childhood grievance that our listeners need to air out? Ooh, listen to this one. This is Molly Sue. I was about seven or eight and had a friend spend the night and she peed the bed. (gasps) denied it was her and accused me of lying. It was definitely not me. And she never apologized. (gasps) That is bad form. And that's exactly what I would have done if I were a child. I remember spending the night at this kid, Gabe's house. 
And I don't know why this happened to Lena, but for some reason, <laughs> this kid's parents were letting us eat pork and beans. You know what I mean? Like hot dogs cut up with baked beans. Beanie weenies. Yeah. I remember sitting in bed eating oh, no. pork and beans. <laughs> and at some point he was one of those beds that had built in shelves underneath it. Uh-huh. And it had like his like rolled up socks and t-shirts and things. And I somehow like some of it spilled. And then I just thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in so much trouble. I just dumped the entire plate of oh. beanie weenies into this drawer and then shut it. Oh my God. I have never, I never saw that kid again, but I think about it on a weekly basis, what his parents must have thought at some point. Oh, you never saw him again because he got sent to military school for hiding baby weenies under the bed and they thought he was a psychopath. That's why exactly. he moved away. This could have happened to listener Molly, like getting blamed for somebody else's behavior. I want to apologize, Gabe. Wherever you are, I am really sorry. That was me who dumped the beanie weenies into that sock drawer. And I, I want you to know. I feel bad about it. <laughs> All right. What's something else that one of our listeners want to get satisfaction on from their childhood? Here's one from Matt. My younger brother would never blow his nose. So my parents started paying him to do it, which was so unfair. Wow. I wonder who was the older kid in that dynamic. My guess is that the listener was the older yes. kid. And so a lot was expected of them. Yes. And then, you know, the, the, the younger one just sort of had everything handed to them, including not having to learn how to blow their nose or being incentivized to blow their nose. This sounds like personal experiences seeping into your interpretation there, eldest child. I set a really low bar for everyone in my family. <laughs> All right. Thanks to everybody who wrote in about their childhood grievances. Of course, we have a question coming up for next week's show, which we will reveal in just a bit. So stay tuned for that. Our next guest is a former professional basketball player and MacArthur Genius Award winner. Her latest book of poetry, Post-Colonial Love Poem, won this year's Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, so you can add that to the list of accolades, and it was a finalist for the National Book Award. Uh, We were so excited to talk to her as part of the Portland Book Festival last year. So take a listen to this. It's our chat with Natalie Diaz here on Livewire. Natalie Diaz, welcome to Livewire. Gracias to both of you. Um, You are, uh, I believe, in uh, Phoenix right now, but you've been spending a lot of time, I understand, uh, you know, during the pandemic on the Fort Mojave Reservation, which is where you also grew up. Like, what has that been like for you to be back kind of in your childhood locus while the world is kind of melting down around us? Uh, It's, I mean, it's, it's always good. Uh, I think of Fort Mojave as home home. Mm. It's been lucky, I think, uh, to, to be home when the book is out. Um, mm. I, I can be myself. You know, I haven't had to step too far outside uh, who I am when I write, which you sometimes have to do when you perform what you've written. And I also think this book for me is, it's many things, but it's very much about my practices of language um, and how that leads me to express desire or pleasure in my life, uh, to be thoughtful about my land and my water in my life. And so, you know, it also felt lucky to, to stay so rooted mm-hmm. to, um, those relationships. So it was basically my partner and I, you know, quarantining, um, I began the quarantine taking care of my mother who was ill, uh, spent a lot of time on my river because the summer passed during that time. And yes, of course, you realize what you're missing. And at the same time, you begin to kind of suture what needs to be closer to you. 
Um, so for me, sometimes mm. the missing is what made things more present to me or made me realize things that, that I need to work to make a little bit more present. I read an interview you did about this book, Natalie, where you said now is an important and dangerous time for language. What did you mean by that? Many things, right? Um, you know, I think uh, there's just a way that our world moves that economizes everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I think that what's been helpful to me as I think about what is language is trying to remind myself always of what it's capable of, and it's capable of very terrible things. Um, mm. You know, uh, the English language in particular in the United States is a, is a very violent and dangerous language and, you know, began itself and built itself by quieting other languages and continuing to try to do that. And at the same time, I think we, we must at least align in, in some ways about also realizing that it, it is such an important like technology of the body. And so I think just typically in America, we have a hard time holding more than one thing true at the yeah. same time. And I think when I, when I think about that, I want to always remember the danger of language because I don't necessarily think danger is only bad. Mm-hmm. I think what, what makes me dangerous mm-hmm. is that I do have a language that other people like me maybe don't have. Let's actually hear something from the book. Um, can you read a poem for us, Natalie? Yeah, so this, this involves Oregon. Um, there's a small epigraph. It's, it's, not, it's less epigraph and more just informational text at the, at the beginning. So I'll read that and then the title. When he left his pack to find a mate, Oregon's seventh collared wolf, named OR7 by state biologists, became the first wolf in California since 1927 when the last one was killed for government bounty. As at one time, natives were also killed for government bounty. Wolf OR7. On a digital map, OR7's trek is charted by a GPS tracking collar and numerous trail cameras. A trembling blue line south, west, south again, 1,200 miles from Oregon to California to find her, Gray Wolf, Canis Lupus, Loba, Beloved. In the tourmaline dusk, I go a same wilding path, pooled by night's maps into the forest and dunes of your hips, divining from you rivers, then crossing them, proving the long thirst I'd wander to be sated by you. I confuse instinct for desire. Isn't bite also touch? Some things cannot be charted. The middle night cosmography of your moving hands, the constellation holding the gods of your jaw and ear. You tell me you take wolf naps, and I turn lupanar. A female gray wolf's shoulders are narrower than a male's, but our mythos of shoulders began before I knew that. When I broke open my mouth upon yours as we pressed against the glass doors of the cliff house, looking out into the bay's shadows, hammering the bronzed bell of the supermoon. My mind climbed the rise, fall, rise of your bared back. In me, a pack of wolves appeared and disappeared over the hill of my heart. I too follow toward where I am forever returning. And somewhere in the dark of a remote night vision camera, 
the quivering green music of animals. That is Natalie Diaz reading from uh, her book of poetry, Postcolonial Love Poem. Uh, what What is the process for you, like, of writing a poem like that? Is it you see something and a, a thought sparks, or do you write little notes to yourself? What's the journey of, of a piece like that? I definitely have a practice of a notebook. So, like, I constantly write, like, all the time. It's kind of one of the ways I can, like, stay still is if I'm right. Like, I have a notebook mm. in front of me right now. I just... just I think better. My mind is such a mess. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I go like, I'm very like etymologically, you know, sewn. And so I begin sometimes with very small words. So just a, a friend of mine mentioned like wolf nap. And then this also happened to be, which I had never heard, you know, and, and this also happened near the same time that, um, that this was happening in Oregon where you could, you could watch it on a, a camera and, um, and I was always missing anything happening on the camera. Like sometimes I would sit and nothing would ever happen. I'd have to see like replayed snippets. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just kind of got obsessed with that little, with that wolf. Um, and then, you know, I've of course come across lots of language that felt very similar to like the language that was used to describe when that last wolf, um, was killed for bounty. It was like the same language used for um, indigenous peoples, for natives in California at one time. And so, of course, that, you know, struck me as well. You have a, a pretty unusual background for poetry, uh, which is that you are a professional basketball player. I'm wondering if there's like uh, any kind of overlap between those two art forms. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely. Um, and I mean, I, I think a lot about lexicons, right? Like what lexicons do we bring? So, I mean, uh, like, Luke, I don't know you very well, but I know of Elena and some of your work and and parts of, of your work that have related to parts of your life. So I, I can think of other lexicons that you're bringing, you know, with you to the page. Like, for me, the desert is a lexicon. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's a way that I write about life that is very different from someone who hasn't lived in the desert. You know, like, I... I very intentionally want to flood everything with light because there's almost no measure of it where I come from. And the same thing with darkness. Like I live in a place that is completely dark at night. So basketball is like one of my lexicons. In some ways, I try very hard to practice my attentiveness on the page of poetry in my daily life. Not that I'm a poet 24-7, but whatever it is I do on the page that is poetry, I feel like I can pull off the page and, and live differently or better. And basketball was that for me my entire life. You know, it was, it's the way I learned the world. It's the way I learned touch and physicality and, and relationship. It's very much about like space and Mm -hmm. futurity, Mm -hmm. you know, like you're never behind. You're always ahead. Basically like what momentum is, right? Are you holding it? Are you building it? Are you releasing it? You know, how is it shifting? Elena, it's been a long time since I've heard you read. Um, but like the physicality of reading, right. And to stand and be the, to be that body there that, um, people are watching for the sound is a very different kind of relationship. I think that's great, Natalie. I think we have often like an early language where we learn how to solve problems and that can be sports. It can be family. It can be the first musical instrument that you pick up. And I think when you become a writer, I think you, you, you tap back into whatever that first 
language system was. And I never thought about the second part that when you're publicly presenting yourself as a body with the work that you made in your brain, there must be like this wonderful uh, connection to this earlier language. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really interesting. I've been doing a lot of like um, collaborations with uh, performance artists and I have a, there's a performance artist and friend named Maria Hupfield, who's an incredible artist. But we've done some collaborations where we ended up switching roles, kind of. She doesn't normally speak in the performance. She will afterward in like a conversation. And I had never stood in the front of the room like that, like in a group of people where I wasn't grounding my body in language. And it was so we were it was like I was grounding in movement and Mm. my glutes and my (laughs) thighs and my hamstrings were so sore <laughs> for like three days. Like it was unbelievable because I didn't realize how I was holding yeah. my body there in the middle. And like, you know, and like I can even feel myself tremble a little bit. Like when right? your thigh trembles, you know, like something's happening. You're you know? shook. Like, <laughs> yeah. like when you have to do defensive slide in basketball, like those, yeah. those practices when the coach is like, we're not bringing a basketball today. And you're just yeah. like, oh, no, this is just going to be defensive slide all day. Yeah. <laughs> um, Natalie, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today. This was really fun. It was great to see you again, Elena, and great, great to meet you, Luke. So I'm wishing you both uh, a good day and uh, love and health to you and your beloveds. That was Natalie Diaz right here on Livewire. Uh, she joined the show as part of the Portland Book Festival, and her Pulitzer Prize-winning poetry collection is called Post-Colonial Love Poem, and it is available now. I'm Luke Burbank, by the way, here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere, because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our next musical guest is one of my very favorite people playing music today. His latest album is Sundowner. Pitchfork described it as a perfect afternoon under a big blue sky, a vision of the Midwest that feels mythical and enormous, which amazingly sums this album up perfectly. Uh, Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Kevin Morby recorded last year here on Livewire. Kevin Morby, welcome to the Livewire house party. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. At the time that you were creating this album, you were kind of in the beginning of, of a relationship uh, with uh, Katie Crutchfield, who plays under the name Waxahachie. Uh, what was that like for you to be making this album while you're also like falling in love, if that doesn't sound too corny? No, not at all. Um, you know, I... With new relationships come a lot of new inspiration. Um, so I think Katie and I were both very influenced by one another. And, you know, we don't sit around and write songs together, but we, you know, are always on uh, each other's periphery. So, you know, a lot of what was happening um, at the time in, in terms of us and everything else made its way into the songs. So, um, yeah, you know, it was pretty magical. It's cool to have a documentation of that time of 
us in the sort of early stages of things. There's a song called Don't Underestimate Midwest American Sun, which is really sort of a snapshot of that. And, you know, Katie and I, before the pandemic, our lives are very hectic and a lot of touring and constant travel. And um, she had moved from Philadelphia to the suburbs of Kansas and I had moved from Los Angeles back to my hometown for the first time in 12 years. And um, so it was just sort of surreal and kind of felt like the two of us against the world in this way for these small little Mm. pockets of time. And this is this whole like sundowner concept, right? About the two of you and and kind of a melancholy when when the sun sets. Yeah, sort of, you know, and and suddenly being in the suburbs of Kansas City, we were just sort of more attuned to the phases of the day, you know. In the in Los Angeles, I was constantly sort of waiting for the sun to go down, and it felt like that's when my day began, you know. Mm. Whereas here, I would just kind of work on music all day, and then when the sun would start to go down, and there's no real distraction from yourself. Yeah, it just brought on a new set of emotions of like, oh, wow, the night is just here and we have nothing to do but just sort of <laughs> have to deal with uh, each other and ourselves. And so it brought on a whole new set of emotions. My um, my 26-year-old daughter, who is a very astute music fan, said she thinks you're the Tom Petty of your generation. The, I, that's incredible because, number one, I've never got that. But number two, I am in a huge Tom Petty phase right now. Ah. Um, so I really appreciate that. I just, I bought a new truck recently and I have like the 30 free days of, uh, XMU and uh-huh. Tom Petty radio on there. I've just been going to town. I just, I'm obsessed with it. So tell her, thank you very much. That's a huge compliment. He's amazing. All right. Well, what song are we going to hear? Um, my song campfire. Okay. And this is off of sundowner. This is off of sundowner. Yeah. This is, um, this is the first single, um, though we're past singles, but yes, it's, it's, <laughs> it's the first yeah. single and the fourth song on the record. All right, this is Kevin Morby on the Livewire House Party. Oh, my, my, oh, I guess That I done my time, now I've laid to rest There's a campfire inside my soul And it billows In the sky was a thousand years old Always kept time in my back pocket No man, goddamn, came to take my soul Shut the door, then lock it In where have all of my friends gone where did all of my friends go? In where have all of my friends gone? They billow. Thought that I saw Jessie, she was sitting in a crowd. Thought that I saw Jessie, then I got to feeling to ever have known someone so pretty and so sweet Who every time she sang a song It sweep me up my feet But oh my my, oh I guess That she's done her time, now she's laid to rest There's a campfire inside her soul Still billow I walked a tad 
devil one sat of me, held by an angel, put poems inside of me, down through my mouth, said, won't you recite to me, okay. Every first Wednesday, there goes that sound again, sun's going down, and she's a sundowner, stay calm, stay calm, and give me a palm, give me a palm, and I'll sing you a song. Young kids smoke cigarettes out on the avenue. Sun's going down, so you might as well have a few. Hey, who are you? Did you hear the news? Anthony's dead in poor Richard, too. They billow, they billow, and it makes me nervous. They whittle a fiddle from wood in our service. Now that it's dusk, kids scatter the avenue. Hey, who are you? I'm a sundowner, too. <laughs> Kevin Morby <laughs> playing off of his new album, Sundowner. Wow, that's amazing, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Kevin Morby right here on Livewire. His album, Sundowner, is available now, and he is back out on tour. Uh, you can find his tour dates at kevinmorby.com. All right, before we get out of here this week, a little preview of next week's show, uh, which, this is so exciting, Elena, this was the first show that we recorded in front of a live audience yeah. since the pandemic. It was really exciting, yes. very fun to be there, especially because Tom Sharpling was there, and he'll be on the show next week. Of course, he hosts the weekly radio call-in show, The Best Show. He's been doing that for 18 years, and he also, of course, worked on the TV show Monk, and he's got a new memoir out. It chronicles his uh, struggles and triumphs and dislike for Billy Joel. Uh, we're also going to hear some hilarious comedy from our old pal, Mohanad Elsheki, and we're going to get some music from the band Maita. And as always, we're going to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we going to ask the listeners for next week's show? Tell us your nicest memory from the last 18 months. Oh, wow. There are some. Yeah. Even though it's been a tough 18 months, there also are some nice memories. Absolutely. And so we want to hear about those. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Rachel Bloom, Natalie Diaz, and Kevin Morby. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Go Ninja, go Ninja, go. And Stephanie Moore <laughs> is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Patty O'Hara of Seattle, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. 
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.